0: The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Command and Control MDS, New Science in MDS Management and Implications for Veteran-Centered Care. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash HWU 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I'm Michael Savona, and um, I'm here uh, with Dr. Andy Brunner this morning to talk to you about MDS. Okay, um, so you know, I spent a, the good part of my career where there wasn't really much going on in MDS. Uh, we had uh, some drugs approved early in this millennium, and then since not much. And in the past three years, we've had uh, two brand new drug approvals, one compendium list approval, and we probably have two or three approvals pending the next a year or so. In addition, we've had a variety of uh, changes to prognostic scoring and classification schema, which are probably worth uh, touching on today, and Andrew will go into some detail about that uh, with you. Low-risk MDS, and I, we don't have the data from uh, you know what's happened to survival since the uh, starting with these new drugs that I just mentioned, because they were just approved, but if you look at survival curves 10 years apart, 2006, 2007, um, low-risk MDS uh, survival didn't really change much. The x-axis is in different units here, but it hasn't changed much, number one. And number two, the patients who uh, have transfusion dependence, they, they do poor. This is an independent uh, uh, risk factor for poor survival. And, and in low-risk MDS, as you noted on the things you want to learn in the, that slide, transfusion dependence and managing it is a real, real challenge. Uh, So we formed the Connect uh, MyWood registry uh, uh, several years ago, and now we have mature data. And there's been um, a number of patients with low-risk MDS that we've studied. And this is to study the natural practice patterns and history of patients with MDS and AML. And what we noted is that um, the patients with low-risk MDS overwhelmingly presented with uh, moderate to severe anemia. Most of them received supportive care only. And uh, most of them never got acute leukemia. They didn't progress to high-risk MDS, but they died as a consequence to the the disease in the low-risk. So the anemia, the thrombocytopenia, the neutropenia that occurred with their quote-unquote low-risk disease. Um, So we have a lot of challenges uh, in MDS, and I think those are underscored in the the veterans uh, that we take care of. Uh, you know, we, we are working as hematologists with uh, clinics, uh, VA clinics that might be 100 or 200 miles away. We're interacting with the team. And we're dealing with the higher rates of alcohol use, uh, liver disease, GI nutritional deficiencies, and heavy metal exposure, which complicate our uh, diagnos- uh, diagnosis. So today, uh, we really want to heighten your understanding um, of the factors that inform diagnostic, prognostic, and management plans. And hopefully increase some of your knowledge of the evidence of the you know the new clinical trials things that have uh, come out in the last couple of years and then they're brewing and and going up for approval and hopefully be able to answer your questions as they come in and i already have like seven of them so uh, very much appreciate it and we'll save time at the end for questions uh, so with that i'd like to
1: uh, hand the mic over to uh, dr brunner thanks very much that's uh Pleasure to be here and uh, see everyone here today um, and talk a little bit about MDS and how uh, we think about it, how that uh, management is evolving um, given a few changes in the field. So, um, you know, I think that this patient here, a 75-year-old Vietnam-area veteran, um, comes to the cancer clinic referred by primary care. He's been noted to have uh, progressive but stable anemia, so hemoglobin of 8.5 over about the last six months. Preserved platelets, preserved neutrophil count. Um, This is a pretty common patient for me to get referred to my clinic. Um, How how about you? When do you want to see, when when should these kind of patients be referred to Hemonc? Well, I'm a blood doctor and that's a blood problem. So, um,
0: you know, I'm, I'm happy to see this patient and all of us deal with referring internists and family physicians who have different skill sets, pen chance and interest and I think you know, on the one hand, I have uh, some internists who only refer to me after they do a very complete workup, right? And then, and then some that uh, you know, the they have normocytic uh, anemia and
1: they uh, and the hemoglobin's uh, 11.5, and they send the patient over. Yeah, absolutely. I think uh, you hit a good point that. Uh, Same for me. You know, I'm happy to complete the workup wherever it is in a phase of uh, evaluation. I think um, some tests need to be thought about for confirming MDS and ruling out other causes, but that can be done with prior to referral or um, can be picked up with with me when I see a patient. Um, Do Do you think about, especially for a VA population, any particular uh, risk factors or causes that you're on the lookout for? Well, you know, as a, uh, uh, as a uh, veteran of foreign war, I'm, I'm uh, this is
0: near to my heart. You know, I'm, I'm uh, concerned about these uh, veterans, and I know they're at increased risk. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, there are some things. I mentioned them briefly in the introduction, but I know you're going to talk
1: about them some more. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when I, I think that we have a lot more tools in identifying a case of MDS, but they also present some unique challenges. So, MDS is characterized, as we know, by having low blood counts, right? You have to have uh, anemia or neutropenia or thrombocytopenia. Often you'll have uh, all three of those. Um, The most common, right, though, being anemia or symptomatic anemia. And then there are other criteria that help, say, the bone marrow is the cause of that low blood count. So, having an increase in dysplasia in the bone marrow, having an increase in blasts, which is basically representative of clonal expansion, or having a karyotype or other evidence of clonality to say this mutated population is why you have a low blood count. Um, And it can be challenging because there are other causes of cytopenias and sometimes it's not just one thing. Um, So when I meet somebody, I'm usually doing a broad panel uh, looking for nutritional deficiencies. Uh, We were commenting before, the number of times that I pick up on copper deficiency Um, is fairly high, Um, and then other uh, exposures, um, medications um, uh, that can be prevalent um, in patients uh, as they come in with MDS, and sometimes you're not sure if it's one thing or multiple, um, and you have to kind of go one by one to try to treat them and figure out what's the main driver. Um, In particular, our use of molecular testing, so sequencing uh, people's blood or Uh, sequencing the bone marrow um, to find uh, mutations that are recurrent and that seem to be prevalent in MDS, but also in other blood cancers and in healthy individuals, has really been a challenge, I think, as I try to integrate that into my clinical practice. Um, We know that people, as we just live our lives, uh, can acquire or have mutations expand uh, in our bone marrow, so stem cells that have one or more mutations, and that over time, some of those can cause a true blood cancer. But often, especially when people have multifactorial anemia, you might find a mutation in clonal hematopoiesis and try to t- uh, detangle it from the rest of their presentation, which can be a difficult challenge. Um, and I think this kind of underscores it. So. These are a number of uh, studies, all looking at how common is it if I sequence somebody's blood to find a mutation that represents uh, clonal expansion. So you know, if I'm using the, f- the presence or absence of a mutation to say you have a blood cancer, how often am I going to find that? And the, the reality is, if you look deep enough, uh, you can find it in almost everyone. So this, there's this line up at the top uh, that's uh, outlined in red. But they did very, very, very deep sequencing um, of uh, patients who are otherwise healthy. And you could see that they um, had almost 100 percent of them, they could find some mutation in that population. So if we're using presence or absence of a mutation to define a disease, it becomes really difficult because many of these people will never have uh, blood cancer in their lifetimes. so there, we do know a little bit about them, and I think that many of us who see MDS or see uh, patients who have uh, cytopenias um, are finding that they come with, or that we do sequencing, and some mutations are worse than others. And so this is uh, some data, kind of giving a framework to think about that. Um, you know, a lot of this becomes trying to estimate what's going to happen to a given patient over the next years when you're following them. Uh, and we've known for a while that certain MDS genes, SRSF2, 3 one these are high risk for progressing. And then some genes that are more associated with clonal hematopoiesis might just stay in the background. Um, and there's this uh, tool uh, that's been evolved using a large population-based data set um, now, just like any tool, it's not perfect, uh, but it does give us uh, a little bit of a framework to understand some of the risk factors that predict whether somebody's going to live with uh, a clonal background for many years and never develop a blood cancer, uh, and compare those to some people who will have high-risk features and that even within two, four, five years will develop have a risk of developing a blood cancer. Um, and so, I, I think. As we develop these tools, we can try to understand patients at the highest risk of progression, and maybe even when we're five, ten years down the road, we'll be intervening earlier in their disease. Um, all, all said, much of our work with understanding clonal hematopoiesis has really changed our understanding of how people develop MDS. Um, we, you know, I, I guess. The thinking previously was that if you get exposed to some toxin, to some DNA-damaging compound, it will cause a mutation in a stem cell, and that mutation that was caused by that exposure will then expand and cause a blood cancer. And clonal hematopoiesis has really challenged that framework, I think, because not only can that exposure cause actual DNA damage, But exposures that we have environmentally, uh, time with aging, changes in systemic inflammatory markers, changes in um, what we live through over our lives, those can uh, help uh, pre-existing mutated cell expand. Um, And so when we think about how people uh, who have high exposure histories, like veterans, or in this example, looking at people who are first responders at the World Trade Center, um, they may not have been exposed to something that caused an exact DNA hit that then uh, causes their blood cancer, but they may have had pre-existing hematopoiesis that really expands because they were exposed to that environmental um, uh, uh, state. And so I think that this is a, a, a real-life example of what people might be exposed to if they are in combat or if they are in uh, areas where they have a lot of environmental uh, challenge, uh, pressure on their body, um, what happens to those clones that they have pre-existing. Um, there have been attempts to try to understand that in a veteran population. So this is kind of looking into a small group of patients, but. How does Agent Orange seem to impact uh, mutation profiles? Um, and is it causing uh, mutations or is it uh, helping a pre existing clonal hematopoiesis expand because it's a, kind of an environmental challenge for the body? Um, I think that this is an example of what w- will eventually, hopefully, result in a bigger population of patients to understand how these exposures and in service or uh, uh, throughout life might influence clones to then who develops uh, blood cancer like MDS. Um, And so when we think about uh, the patient who is referred to us, um, he uh, developed a worsening anemia over three months, so initial hemoglobin was about 8.5, and now it's dropped to 7.5. His platelets are still preserved, neutrophils are still preserved, uh, doesn't have any bleeding or nutritional deficiencies identified in a secondary workup. Um, and then a bone marrow biopsy shows that he has an increase in ring sideroblasts. So here's a nice picture of these uh, iron uh, stain of these ring Um Low blast count, 2% blasts, and uh, panel sequencing was sent out and it came back with a mutation in a gene SF3B1. Um, and so, you know, I think, um, Now, seeing this patient, I think this is a fairly common patient for uh, my clinic uh, as a new referral, Um, how how would you kind of risk assess this patient uh, when you meet them?
0: Well, I think people asked in the beginning about the new scoring systems and IPSSM, and I'm I'm really glad that you're going to be talking about it. Um, But to be honest, like in this case, I don't think the scoring systems help that much because I know this patient's low risk. I mean, um, and, and, and I think you know, uh, at the ends of the spectrum, we kind of know it when we see it, right? Someone comes in with 18% blasts and 10 mutations, I don't have to plug that in, I know that patient's high risk. If someone has an SF3V1 mutation in ring sideroblast with one isolated cytopenia, I know that's a quote-unquote lower risk, and lower risk MDS is still something people die from, not necessarily with, um, But um, uh, so I don't really see the value in the system there. It's, it's everything in, be- in between, which I guess you'll articulate more
1: yeah I, th- I absolutely I think um, one of the challenges is how do we integrate this into clinical practice, and hopefully we can get some insight into at least how we're doing it, but um, it's an evolving thing um, when you uh, you know when you're trying to meet somebody and describe these systems, they can be quite complex. Uh, do you have a way that you tend to approach it with your with your patients?
0: Yeah, I mean it, it depends on on the patient. Sometimes showing them on my phone is not a good idea. Uh, but if I you know have a, a screen in my office, I can open up the MDS risk assessment tool, which if you haven't seen, is a really nice tool we've built to try to make it uh, visually understanding to you know uh, understandable to patients. Um, the input's a little complex for most of the patients, but all of you can handle it. And then the output, you can really
1: see something that the patient can say, "Oh, this is where my risk sits on this curve." Yeah, I think I have an example here um, because there have been a lot of changes in the last couple of years. Uh, there have been changes in the diagnostic criteria. Um, to be honest, uh, like you mentioned about MDS with ring sideroblasts, some things. Uh, have not really changed that much, and you know it when you see it type of uh, thing. But there are some updates. Uh, There are two systems, and while that does create some conflicting nomenclature, overall, I think that the two systems are pretty similar, um, and and they draw upon the old uh, criteria. Um, Our pathologists tend to report both, um, but as far as creating a diagnosis of MDS, Um, This tends to be the first step. The the biggest takeaway, I think, is that we have a larger incorporation of mutation data, kind of reflecting our evolution of practice. In particular, the addition of TP53 mutated disease. So if you've lost both copies of TP53 through whatever mechanism, those patients really are difficult to treat. Um, But overall, uh, our minor updates that uh, kind of have evolved with the field and how we diagnose MDS um, but still, when I meet somebody, I'm trying to then prognose the, uh, prognosticate with them. Um, because the bigger question is, what's going to happen over the next one, two, five, ten years as I follow you? Um, and can we estimate that at the beginning? And then can we uh, move the, uh, you know, m- uh, respond to any changes in your disease as it, as it goes? And uh, you're absolutely correct. There's a new online tool. Um, it does have a lot of fields, so it is not something I can think of on the top of my head. Uh, so, unless you're encountering one of these very low risk or very high risk patients that you can kind of see um, for many of the middle of the group, it is helpful to plug them into the tool. I think another advantage of this tool is it can make estimates even if you haven't done a specific uh, part of it. So if you don't know the mutation uh, burden, if, you have, if, you didn't get, if they didn't get sequencing at diagnosis, you can still input that that was not done, and it will give you an error bar to kind of get a sense of uh, their disease risk. Um, and it comes out kind of like this, so um, when you plug in the risk of a given patient, Uh, Using their blood counts, their chromosome testing, and their molecular testing, as well as blasts, you kind of get this uh, curve. And this is the curve of all the patients uh, according to their risk of progression. And you can see where your patient, this little blue dot, falls along the line um, relative to other people with MDS. Um, so it can kind of give you a talking point, a, a starting point, I think, of what to expect from your disease, how do we think about it, how does what is likely to happen influence how I'm going to treat you. Um, because for some people, I, I, I agree with you completely, people still, uh, low-risk disease does not mean it is no risk, um, but uh, the treatment goals may be slightly different than people who whose disease is closer to acute leukemia. Um, and Uh, I guess just as an update to understanding of all these prognostic scores, I still end up using quite a few of them (laughs) whenever I meet a new patient. Uh, You know, many of our therapeutics were all developed in the old IPSS. And so the benefit of a lot of our drugs is based on their original IPSS risk. Um, And it's not always clear uh, whether those have the same impact when you get into a molecularly driven risk score. So I, I think that it can be helpful to talk to a patient about how risk changes and what that means for them. Overall, I think we have a better granularity for understanding how patient's uh, risk is, but um, just be being aware that uh, any one score is imperfect, I guess, uh, it's how you follow the patient and treat them that matters.
0: Great, Andrew. and. Uh You know, in putting this score together, we pooled 3,500 patients with MDS across the world from about 40 centers. And, um, you know, the score, if you notice, it's binary. You know, you either have the mutation or you don't, but as you saw in Andrew's presentation, it's not just binary, right? It matters what the varinol frequency is. How many of the cells have that mutation? Which mutation is it? Um, We've got that covered in a binary fashion, but the combination of mutations, we've only got this at a cursory level. And what's really a little spooky is there's probably something to the variance, which makes sense if you think about it. If you have a mutation at one point in the DNA versus another, it can change the structure of the protein and have different effects. So with that background, I'm going to get into um, some new developments. and I apologize ahead of time. I'm going to go very quickly. Um, I'm happy to take questions about um, this, but this is a little different than a lot of presentations you'll see because I'm going to show... Two phase three slides with not a lot of the supporting evidence, so I can go over a lot of different bits. And I know you should be familiar with most of this, but I will reference the material and where you could find more. All right. So when we start here, we're gonna uh, we're talking about Robert, and uh, we confirmed this uh, by IPSSM that it was just as I thought. It was low risk, um, but the patient has a transfusion burden of four transf four uh, packed red cells over two months, and now has a hemoglobin of six
1: point five. So would you call this patient
0: transfusion dependent?
1: So yeah, it's a great question. There have been some changes in what meets transfusion dependence for the purpose of clinical trials. And sometimes clinical trials can be a little restrictive or not. But you know, once a patient really starts to need transfusions on a a consistent basis, uh, even before potentially hitting four units in a two-month period um that's when i'm thinking that this person has a transfusion dependence that we need to think about intervening on Yep, we're thinking iron overload we're thinking uh you
0: know intervention and you know in 2020 all we had was really esa's and revlimid for the 5q minus folks so this is um, where i'll introduce the first new therapy that a lot of you are starting to use in the clinic and um a drug called <laughs> Luspatercept. Uh, I was part of the development team for Sotetaracept, and the Europeans had Luspetaracept, so it was a little bit of dueling banjos, and they, they won. Uh, but the drugs are very similar, and, and, and they basically consist of this, um, you know, Activan, um, uh, uh receptor that's kind of fused with the um, FC of the human IgG1, uh, which basically floats around and scavenges ligand thus um, squelching the capacity of the SMAD receptor to activate, and SMAD, as you may recall, is the negative regulator of late-stage erythropoiesis, so you're, it's a, a, my mother-in-law's an English teacher, it's a double negative uh, here, where you're blocking the blocker, um, and that's kind of how the drug works. So we had really successful uh, early studies, and in the phase two study, we had uh, preponderance of deep responses with patients with ring sideroblasts, So there was a phase three study that you're probably very familiar with called the METALIST study. And the METALIST study randomized patients with ring sideroblast who were likely not to respond to EPO or who have failed EPO. And when I say likely not to respond to EPO, I mean a serum EPO level of uh, greater than 500. Um, And uh, they randomized two to one, which we felt was the merciful thing to do because we already had such a strong signal in the early uh, clinical study. Uh, and this is the, the result with the uh, primary endpoint of eight-week transfusion independence. And you can see that the transfusion independence was superior loose Luspetracept after EPO failure to placebo, which was not unexpected, and maintained for 12 and 16 weeks. And I'll show you some long-term follow-up in a few minutes. Um, and this was true no matter how many transfusions people had before, but it's important to note that the, um, and this is kind of like, you know, um, the, the common sense piece. Well, the, the, the more damaged in your bone marrow is, the more failure you have, the less likely the drug is to work. And that rang true, where the more transfusion dependence you had, the heavier transfusion burden patients had uh, less of a chance of responding and doing better with loose paracet than placebo. But those patients with low and intermediate kind of transfusion dependence did uh, fairly fairly well. So this study led to the approval of, of loose patercept and it's used in the second line setting in patients with ring sideroblast, but we asked the question, wait a minute, you know what about patients um, who have, uh, don't have ring sideroblast but have low-risk MDS that we treated in the phase two? Could those patients benefit from getting the drug? And two, well, you know this really worked well. Is it better to use it up front in ring sideroblast patients? So the command study was designed, and we can talk about the design a little bit, but basically lower risk MDS patients um, who were transfusion-dependent, not the high transfusion-dependent patients, the lower transfusion-dependent patients um, who were unlikely to respond to EPO because otherwise you'd be setting the EPO harm to fail, up to fail here, and they were randomized to either uh with a gradual uh, titration capacity from one meg per kg to 1.75, and I'll underscore, 1.75 is the acceleration of the, the drug in MDS, and I can't tell you how many referrals I get of patients who go from 1 to 1.33, because that's the dosic um, escalation in patients with beta-thalassemia. And, and there's some confusion about that in the community. And then the patients with EPO started at kind of a low dose and then went up to this 1,000 units per kilogram, which is, you know, kind of what you guys are used to seeing 60,000 units a week, which is kind of where we max out. And then we looked at um, the response uh, every half year or so. And in the command study, um, the patients who received um just did better. I mean, there was more transfusion independence, as you can see here, um, and it's statistically significant, than the patients who received EPO up front. If you look across subgroups, um, this was true across subgroups. Um, in the patients who had really, you know, 200 to 500 serum EPO level, as you'd expect, lusperacept would do a lot better. In ring siderobl as you expect they do a lot better. But in the patients with ring sideroblast-negative disease, there was clearly a benefit to losaparib, but it wasn't really a benefit over EPO. Likewise, the SF3B1 mutant, consistent with the ring sideroblast SF3B1 mutant uh, uh, pairing that we see a lot of the time, didn't do all that much better. But what's really important about this is the transfusion independence and the duration of the transfusion independence. The patients that went—I mean, everybody ends up at the same place—but we're talking, um, you know. Uh, impacting natural history, not biology, by treating people and making them less likely to have to get transfusions. All the complications of transfusions, which we know can impact survival, but also quality of life. And the median transfusion, um, duration of transfusion independence was over two years in patients with loose petriceps. So this is really impressive. Now if you stratify this on ring sideroblast positive and ring sideroblast negative patients, the patients who had ring sideroblast, as expected, did far better on loose petaricep. But there's no statistical significance um, in the RS negative. It looks like that loose pedercept arm is breaking away at the end, but those not, there's not enough events there. So those curves are overlapping. So what does this tell us, um, the command study? Well, loose pedercept is superior to EPO in this, uh, in, in this setting with respect to achieving transfusion independence. Um, we know we can now use this across the board and the approval that was just granted in August was a fairly broad label, so you can use this drug in patients who have never even had EPO. Well, what hasn't been tested, though, it, it's never been tested whether people ha- get EPO followed by Luspetracep versus petricep followed by EPO. So, you know, if you got pa- patients who are likely to respond to EPO, it's probably just fine to give them EPO. Um, but um, we learned a little bit more about kind of a little more experience in this additional phase three study at loose and some of the uh, safety profile, which I'll show you in a minute, uh, which made us feel a little more assured. Uh, and then we have long term data, which will, um, you know, help us kind of get a better sense of that point I made a minute ago about sequencing these drugs. Okay, Andy. So, um, you know, you, you, you. Um, you have this patient, Robert, uh, that you were telling me about, and I just gave you this data from Commands. Um, what, 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 what do you think you should do
1: with this guy up front? Yeah, it's a, You know, it's, this is an uh, evolving area. I think we're all learning how to integrate this data. You know, when I look at Commands and I look, when I look at Metalist, um, my takeaways are loose Pyrocept is very active. If somebody needs a response faster, Um, Loose Paracept may offer that. Um, And Loose Paracept can last longer, um, but it has less of an impact in late phases of disease. So when people are really heavily transfusion dependent, I think it's uh, more challenging. And so for people who have uh, MDS with ring seroblasts, um, it it really is a question of, do I give them a chance uh, to see if EPO gives me a little time? Uh, or do I just jump straight to lose Petarcept? Um And I think that the big takeaway for me is uh, management of anemia in MDS is no longer just set it and forget it. You know, you can't just start somebody on EPO and kind of hope that things go okay for as long as possible. Um, if I were to start uh, Robert on EPO, I'd probably make sure that his transfusion needs went away. And if, uh, if they don't, switch over to loose paracept quickly, which is a little bit of a change, uh, a little bit more active management um, for these patients than I might have done in the past when I only had one drug. Um, and so um, I'd still talk to him about the uh, possibility of going on ESA. It is tough, because we don't know if I could use it down the road. Um, but I definitely wouldn't let him uh, linger on it if I did try it.
0: Yeah, it's definitely give us a lot more flexibility, which, you know, it's, it's nice to be able to, you know, enter a gunfight with more than a sword, right? So, you know, you have a, a couple of weapons there. Okay, so if we do start on luspericep, then what do we have to think about with respect to safety and dosing? Well, in the Medalist study, uh, we, you know, we were a little concerned because we saw a lot of fatigue and if you've given this drug, um, you know there was in the middle study, forty percent of the patients had grade one two, uh, at least some uh, fatigue. Um, with uh, the, and that's a big number. Most of that was grade one two, but um, you know it was enough that it was it was enough to take some of those patients off study. So entering commands, you you know we were kind of saying, well, you know we're going to see that same level of fatigue, and we really just didn't the fatigue and asthenia were much lower. Um, I will say that just like the clinical studies, if you can get someone through that first month, it does go better. Um, of course, that's a bias. If you can't get through the first month, you're, you're likely to have more, you know, your fatigue is likely to be too much. And that is something to kind of keep your eye on. We're not sure of the mechanism of that yet, but it's not an anemia-related fatigue. That's independent of their response. Um, we do have some cytopenias, but we think this is consistent with uh, placebo and, um, you know, the progression of, of the disease. Everybody who's on this drug, though, you know, c- could have an increase in blood pressure, which you know you're going to have to watch. And um, most of the time, I manage through um, increases in blood pressure. I, uh, you know, I, 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 t- I say that, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm using two drugs or less, I can manage. If it's more than that, I send to the cardiologist or their, their internist to manage. But, um, you know, the uh, the expectation that they might need more antihypertensives with a growing dose is is, um, is real. Okay, so for the remaining 10 minutes, I want to talk a little bit about um, you know what's next. Uh, you know, in, in, in high-risk MDS, there's been a lot of excitement that you've probably seen at ASH or ASCO um, with some of the disease-modifying agents. Unfortunately, the megrolimib didn't pan out as, as we had thought, and I have some thoughts on that if you want to ask at the end, because I do think it's an active drug. But we still have to hear about TIM3 and venetoclax and, and MDS, which is, does look promising. Um, and uh, and 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 then there's a variety of, of new agents looking at lower risk MDS and even late stage CH, and you know I, if you look at the things that we do for lower risk MDS, once patients fail or are failed by, EPO and losaplatin, you know there's not much left. If they're not a five q 5Q- minus patient, they're not going to respond to lenalidomide. HMAs are the backbone of our therapy for high-risk MDS, but in my experience, in low-risk MDS, after EPO and loose-patercept failure, they're not particularly useful. So we really need agents to address this transfusion dependence, which I've already showed you early on in the talk, is an independent risk factor for survival. So, um, you know, Robert, uh, let's assume Robert re- uh, received ESA instead of loose-patercept, and his transfusion requirement went down, um, and he was responding very well, but now it's 14 months later uh, and his uh, re- transfusion requirements gone back up. W- what do you make of this? Do you just keep
1: him on EPO or? Yeah, I mean, I think that this is a pretty common scenario where you get some benefit for a little while out of uh, EPO. Sometimes that can be a really great transfusion-free period, um, but recognizing that the need for transfusions unless there's some other explanation, GI bleeding or a viral illness or hospitalization or something that you can explain the worsening. Um, historically I think we used to leave people on EPO and assume that they would do worse if they weren't on it. Um, I think that here is really where uh, it should be a trigger for us to change therapy and that they they really have been failed by the EPO at this point.
0: Yeah, it's, it's analogous, right, to like the, I tell patients, you know, if, if with acute leukemia, you know, you induce and you, you're in remission or you're not, and in these chronic myeloid diseases, it's it's kind of like the team of horses. You, you know, you have the the, the bridle and the, the reins, and like some of the reins may bust through, so, but you still have some, so you're kind of keeping this to a canter rather than a gallop, but, you know, the the, the, the more reins we have, the, the less that, you um, you know, that, that that theory works, and the, be, and the, the best it is to kind of, you know, look for the next available therapy. So this is the exciting thing for us. We'll talk about some of these options kind of coming down the pike. So the long-term data for OUSPATRCEPT is very promising. Um, the, um, the patients that had at least a 50% transfusion burden reduction and the low transfusion burden patients is, you know, is pretty high, you know, 60% of the patients. Uh, and you know the patients had 75% transfusion reduction, a little lower, but still impressive. So the, we published this last year, and we're you know pleased with the long-term follow-up so far. We'll be interested to see what this looks like uh, long-term follow-up commands, which of course is a little bit different study population. So um, you know these are the the, the two cur- survival curves from the uh, AZA001, fludarabine, and the, uh, the the cancer paper from Hugo Kattarjan, now published um, 18 years ago. Um, and uh, leading, leading to the approval of both of these these drugs, but as I said, you know, at the doses we give them, they, they're fairly cytotoxic and can cause more problem than good in lower risk MDS, and really don't really fix the anemia, especially when these patients start to develop a lot of transfusion dependence and fibrosis in the marrow. But there is an idea to kind of use like a you know like a little bit of dose, and you know we attempted this. Uh, this was presented this year at the MDS Foundation International Congress in Marseille. Uh, where my partner and I, we developed this oral decytabine, Cidazidurine, uh, Guillermo Garcia Monero, presented his um, metronomic dosing data. And you'll, you'll notice here, if you look, this is Cidazidurine 100 milligrams, same as the Encovi, which is available to you. But the decytabine dose is not 35 milligrams, but five milligrams. So the idea is to give a low dose oral decidabine or uridine over a longer period of time uh, to see if you can impact transfusion dependence. And this is early data, but you can see in a few patients that it worked. And we're just um, we're, we're trying to see this is a swimmer's plot with the dots indicating this transfusions. Um, but you know, we're still early going, but maybe this is a an uh, opportunity, and because it's oral. You know, it doesn't make a lot of sense that people coming to get parenteral to be, you know, 10, 15 days in a row. But maybe with an oral drug, we can get away with this, and if we use metronomic dosing, it, um, you know, with this lower dose, we, we, it might be safe. That's all I'll say about that, I'll move on to Amatelstat, which this has been a, a, a long, uh, very now gratifying, because this is looking like it's getting close to approval, but uh, just a, uh, a long development story. We, we first uh, used really high doses of the drug and had some non-heme toxicity, uh, which were all dose dependent and we've solved. Um, and I'm gonna show you the phase three data, go right into it in a minute, but just let me briefly tell you what this drug is. Um, it's a, a, a telstat is a, a telomerase inhibitor. Uh, and malignant cells have continued, upreg- continued upregulated telomera- telomerase, which uh, leads to this like ap- apoptosis, necroptosis. And necroptosis is an inflammatory condition dispel cells break open, all these damps and inflammatory cytokines are spilling around in the cytoplasm, or in the um, niche rather, and they create kind of more inflammation and more genetic change, and this is kind of the cycle of lower risk MDS. Um, but this is uh, particularly potent and in, in lower risk disease in early trials, so a phase three study was conducted uh, called the IMERGE study, and we just had this accepted to Lancet, so you'll see it uh, in press soon, but I'll, I'll show you the data which has been presented um, by uh, a few different people, uh, Amir Zaiden one, and, and Uvi Platzberger uh, over the past year or so. Basically, it's a similar population to the um, uh, medalist uh, or to the command study, rather. We took lower risk patients who were either ring citerblast positive or negative uh, and they were um, unlikely to respond uh, to EPO and they had transfusion dependence, more than four units in this study defined as more than four units over 16 weeks. Um, We excluded patients who were going to respond to lenalidomide, the 5Q people, uh, and they couldn't have had len or an HMA. And uh, they basically were stratified by high risk uh, or, sorry, high transfusion burden or low transfusion burden, similar to the metalist and command study, and randomized, as you can see here. And the take-home message from this study is that the primary endpoint of eight-week transfusion independence was superior for Amatelstat, and this was maintained at 16, 24, and even 52 weeks. We did lose responses. Only 13.6% of the patients had a transfusion independence at a year, uh, but that's compared to 1% or 2% in the placebo arm. So, you know, we're pretty uh, bullish on this, and uh, what's really exciting about Amatelstat. Uh, is that we think it modifies disease. So, Patercept, we're not really sure if this is, is modifying the malignant clone. There's no evidence that the um, that the uh, the VAFs of the mutations go down or that the process is stopped. We're helping with the anemia because we're you know blocking the the, the blocker of late stage erythropoiesis. That Smad interaction I told you about earlier. But imatelstat is actually changing the hematopoietic stem cell insofar as we see reductions in the VAF. So the, the mutations that are present at the beginning of the trial, especially sf 3 b one tend to relent when the patients respond. We're not sure we understand that exactly, but that's very, um, that's promising. As a, as a physician scientist, I'm really kind of happy to see that. Now, um, you know, what about the duration of, of the response? Well, we, we lose response. Um, I, I showed you only 13% of patients transfusion dependent at, at, at one year, but the patients who do respond can get some really nice two-year uh, trans, you know, duration of their transfusion independence. And this adds one more kind of bullet in the gun with respect to uh, taking care of low-risk MDS patients who are transfusion dependent. Now, the big difference with stat is this causes a, a fair bit of heme toxicity. And um, you know, as, as MDS doctors, we're kind of used to this, right? We give HMAs, and everybody's counts get worse before they get better. So this wasn't too big of a deal to deal with in the trial. Um, but you know, if you're giving someone an infusion uh, and then sending them home in a month, this is uh, not loose Um It is a drug that may cause some significant cytopenias, leading to uh, discontinuation in extreme cases, but more often dose. Um, holds or dose modification, so it's important that in the first couple cycles, at least, that you're checking people's CBC weekly or even more in some cases to assure you don't end up with a bottom out of of counts and and in between cycles. So before we get to questions, I just want to summarize um, a few things from our presentation. Uh, Molecular genetics are now not um, uh, optional. It is standard of care for patients with MDS and uh, really critical. I mentioned that you know, you know it when you see it, ring sitter with SF3V1 mutation. But there's a small number of patients, about 15 percent of those SF3V1s that have TP53 mutations, and they do not behave the same way, and they quickly develop uh, a clonal evolution. And that comes out if you look at IPSSM in the beginning and you have uh, next gen sequencing. If you don't have it, you're not going to see that. Um, I, I think that. Um, you know, you should do that at diagnosis, but anytime there's a substantive change, as Dr. Bruner said, I mean, it's difficult because sometimes these people, they're 75 years old, they could have angiodysplasia and, and have rectal bleeding, and, you know, their anemia can appear to be getting worse on agent. Really, it has nothing to do with their bone marrow. So you do have to be careful, but, um, you know, if they have verifiable um, loss of response, that's a time to, to, to look again. Um, You know, you can look at all of these scoring systems and the Sankey plot that he showed is really informative because the patients with uh, low risk MDS and I think the graph you showed was IPSS IPSS INT1, and you know you, you you all remember from the 90s Corey Cutler's paper where intermediate one patients shouldn't go to transplant, intermediate two should go to transplant. At least that was kind of the you know the estimate of what we should do with these people. Well, those intermediate one patients they now stratify into really high risk patients on IPSSM, or really low risk patients. So it's really helpful for those people, as I said in the middle. There's a lot new th- a lot of new therapies in MDS. This has been my career's work trying to develop new therapies for patients who don't have them. And it's very gratifying now, after you know 15 years of, of of kind of a crickets, to see a lot of things starting to actually get purchased. Where you know our wheels have been spinning, we're really starting to get purchased now. And hopefully, um, you know you have fun taking care of them because there's a lot more things we can do, and that's gratifying when we have more than um, our a hand on the shoulder and our and our empathy. Uh, hopefully, this gives you a, a sense of how to set treatment goals um, to achieve the uh, benefits that you hope to receive with your patients. Really appreciate your attention and we're happy to take uh, questions, thank you. Have you ever used low-dose single-engine ASA and low-risk MDS? Um, I have, off-label, and I was involved in the, um, in the um, AZA, oral ASA cc 46 studies years ago. We tried to get cc 46 into lower risk, well, first we had tried higher-risk MDS, and I will tell you that um, the Quasar study showed that that drug is beneficial in that very small subset of patients who kinda can't get their full consolidation. But that drug is not equivalent to azocytine. It's a very different drug. It's active, but it's very different. And we learned this um, by using all kinds of dose, dosing, trying to overcome the cytidine deaminase in the gut. That would deaminate the drug as we took it orally. So that was the philosophy with the CC46, as opposed to the encovi S6727 uh, approach, which was, hey, let's put a candy coating on that chocolate so that you know we can get it through the, the you know metabolism and it appears in the blood equivalent to the parental dose and have equal pharmacokinetics. So I have done it before with kind of middling success, um, and um, you know I had a little more experience with the oral Aza but I, uh, I, I'm not sure at this point I'd recommend that at least in the very beginning because you have so many new options that are um, more likely to work and, and probably with less toxicity. Um, so this is a question, I'll ask Andy to answer this one. So when do, you, when do you do a bone marrow biopsy in asymptomatic elderly patients who you think have MDS?
1: Yeah, it, I mean it's a great question, especially with uh, you know, these gene sequencing panels. There are a lot of efforts. Can you get around uh, bone marrow biopsy um, I think for a full picture, we're still doing, you know, the bone marrow biopsy is still kind of integral in that diagnostic step. And especially anyone who's older who has an unexplained cytopenia, the chance of them having some clonal process is, is relatively high. Um, so if anything, we probably underdiagnose patients by... Uh, not trying to get that last step of uh, uh, testing. So mutation testing has been great. It can be done on the blood, it can help us, but I think it has not yet obviated the need for a bone marrow exam.
0: Yeah, I, I I agree with that. I, you know, it's funny. At, at in my practice, I have a, a chip clinic which I started in 2018, and at first, it was all the solid tumor patients who had like a random clone that they found. But now, I get 23andMe people. I get people who just pay. You know, want to who have a slight anemia. I got people who want to do. You know, I, I'm I'm billing as a hematologist for cardiac risk evaluation. You know, what I mean, and you know, I, I'm 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 this is kind of where we're at. And and. Uh, you know, I think if if I have the benefit of knowing someone has, uh, you know, high VAF mutants or combination, you know, my trigger to do a bone marrow biopsy is a, a lot quicker than it might be uh, otherwise. Uh, so there were questions about data and MDS and Gulf War veterans. I, I, I'm one of those, so I, I'm kind of particularly interested in this question. We don't, but the Million Veterans Project, which I'm sure many of you in, are involved in, is going to be really uh, a monumental step forward in understanding um, you know, pathogenesis of disease for specifically veterans. And hopefully, um, you know, at Vanderbilt, we're a data center for this study, and we're very interested in, in kind of seeing how that turns up. Um, yes, sir. Do we have any evidence that it actually improves overall survival? When is the use starting chelation? You know, Mayo Clinic said something some years ago about 100 units. They didn't think there was a problem until you got to 100 units. Obviously, we know that if you get hyperferidinemia, though, you probably do have a shorter survival but are we actually benefiting that? Yeah, so I'm gonna let Andrew answer that, but I'm gonna start by saying that's the, that what we heard years ago is wrong. <laughs> so go ahead, Andrew.
1: No, for sure, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that the, the it's a tough thing to study. The best study is probably the Telesto II trial um, that uh, looked at chelation and, had a combined endpoint, um, which includes survival, but also included a number of cardiovascular endpoints, and, and so chelation does reduce, did reduce the number of events in that study. But it's a mixed bag, and some of that is iron overload, some of that is um, survival, um, some of it's just complications of chronic transfusion. So, if uh, I prefer. <laughs> to use the therapy to take away their transfusion needs and try to push that out. Uh, somewhere in the 1,000 to 2,000 ferritin range, I tend to. I don't use a specific cutoff for uh, blood, red blood cells. It's usually the uh, patients who have you know, an anemia that they're gonna have it for a long time. I'm not gonna fix this. It's gonna be years of therapy. You're gonna get transfusions during that. And somewhere in the... Uh, 1500 is probably my average ferritin, but it's usually um, more. Uh, by that point, they've gotten a lot of transfusions. They're st- we can we know that they're stable, and it's more to facilitate their long-term outcome. Yeah,
0: I, I think there's so I so I I, I do it earlier, and and you're going to see this kind of like debate because we don't re- we don't have good data. I, I tell my fellows it's the evidence-free zone, the EFZ. You know, we, we don't know exactly what the right number is, but I try to think about it contextually. So if I have someone who is gonna you know, be a transplant candidate, and this gets up to a couple more questions on the list here, um, I gotta be thinking, you know, I gotta make sure their liver's good and they're not you know, iron overload, because that's an independent risk factor for death with transplant. And, and so you know, why do you transplant low-risk patients? Well, let's talk about that a little bit. If you have an 85-year-old who's got low-risk MDS, low-risk MDS the goal is to have an increased quality of life, and, and this is something that you hopefully can die with and not from. But if you have a 45-year-old or a 50-year-old, then that patient is not going to make it to the life expectancy they should without a stem cell transplant. Uh, and you know, um, we're thinking more, and IPSSM IPS is helping, but we're thinking more about transplant earlier. But we have to evolve. Like our guidelines aren't even there. We can't get insurance to cover the low-risk MDS, and frankly, we shouldn't be transplanting a lot of these people. But some of these younger patients, and I will tell you, anyone over under 60. I do uh, bone marrow failure screening on because you shouldn't get MDS in your 50s uh, or your 40s. And I've picked up a lot of, um, you know, germline disorders and telomereopathies. And that helps us not only to know they need a transplant, but it helps us to know that the transplant preparative regimen should be very different. Because if we get a dyskeratosis patient, a typical dyskeratosis patient, high-dose therapy, we can really mess them up. Um, here's a qu- I like this one, Andrew. I, I'm going to let Andrew answer this because I don't want to. Uh, so, would you ever consider combining
1: ESAs with loose pettercept? Um, <laughs> uh, so, I, I have done this. Um, it, it, and there is some data to guide it. Uh, it. It's all retrospective at this point. It tends to be people who have responded to ESA and then responded to loose uh, and then when you've lost the response to this paracept, you can sometimes salvage them by combination. Um, and I've had mid- some patients' res- uh, benefit. I think, it, it, to your point about when faced with what to do next, and if there's not a lot of options, you know, uh, HMA therapy can be kind of a uh, unpalatable option for a lot of these patients, especially if their only problem is still anemia. So that's the setting where I've tried it, and and you do get some responses. Um, blood pressure is a little bit more of an issue, though.
0: Yeah, I, I I would say the same. I I think in the VA, one thing I've learned, uh, you know, it may take longer to get on formulary, but you have a lot more freedom when you have things on formulary, and in in the private market, it's sometimes you you just you know you're. You can scream it in a peer-to-peer, but you're never going to get both of those drugs paid for. Um, so that's more of the uh, issue in the in the um, outside of the VA. Um, so there were questions about, um, in your experience, how rapidly can patients become transfusion dependent, and what time interval should we have in mind when monitoring patients? Um, so that's a mixed bag, right? Uh, I think that. Um, what we're, we have clues in next-gen sequencing of where, which patients are gonna develop acute leukemia. And Andy and I, kind of seeing a lot of this day after day, get a sense of like, you know, they have high VAF UTA of UTAF1. I know this patient is not only gonna be at high risk for leukemia, but they're gonna have more transfusion. You know, if they're already anemic, they're gonna be transfusion-dependent quickly. Um, you get kind of a sense of that uh, gamish. But really, you know, just like the scoring systems, the, the the C index is still only 75%. So these are our kind of best vet best bets on, and like I tell patients, you know, there's no you out there. There's a 1,000 people kind of like you, and I'm trying to give you an idea how those 1,000 patients did um, and to project how you might. But, you know, you, you might not do like that. You might do a little bit differently. So it's really kind of all over the place. Um, There's some questions here, Andy, about the um, uh, academic versus cu- and versus community HCPs using the new diagnostic, prognostic, and response criteria tools in daily practice. So like IPSSM, what's the difference between how you might use it and how it might be used in the community? Uh,
1: you know, and it, uh, you can even argue b- between us, we probably use it differently. <laughs> I think we're still evolving in how we interpret it. I, I use... Um, I think that one of the challenges is that of transplant decisions. I think that the IPSSM and understanding molecular risk has really enhanced our understanding of who's not gonna just have quiet disease. Um, and you you'll you figure that out along the path with them, but it gives us a, a preview of what's ahead. And so that sometimes can be helpful to set expectations with patients after they're diagnosed. Um, I, but for therapeutic uh, intervention, especially in older patients, I. I'm often thinking back to the IPSS. You know, if I've got somebody who's only got anemia, they have higher mutation risk, um, but their only problem is anemia and they would have been intermediate one by IPSS and now they're high risk by IPSSM, I'm often still therapeutically leaning back to the scores that were used for the original trials. And so Maybe I think Your ears it, are a little bit more peaked, but you're, <laughs> but you're using the earlier therapy. Right. Um, exactly. And so I think that that is one of the areas of evolution where when we use these, no one tool is perfect. Um, and we have to kind of uh, also think about how the patient contextually what they need. Um, so, it's an evolution, but uh, I think it's a great new tool. And it definitely, uh, ex- exactly you said, people who have high mutation risk, um, you're, you're maybe watching them a little bit closer. Well, with that, um, we'd uh, really like to thank you for your attention.
0: Hopefully you got something out of this, and we'll go ahead and end the program before they gong us off the stage here. Thanks, have a great day, enjoy the rest of the conference. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash HWU 860. This activity is supported through an educational grant from Bristol Myers Squibb.